This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it's great to be with you for what is our 94th consecutive program dealing with the battle with the COVID-19 pandemic, which wages on. Um, As we see this week, uh, President Biden has now been diagnosed at age 79 with COVID-19. He, as has been stated, stated, he is fully vaccinated, fully boosted, and receiving Paxlovid. So I thought it's worth talking a little bit about the regimen, okay, the idea of, so first of all, we know there are two vaccine uh, shots that you get if you get, if you use the Pfizer or Moderna brand. After that, there's a booster shot. Now there's a second booster. And our data is telling us now that that second booster is primarily for people who are immunosuppressed, have any at-risk condition, heart disease, diabetes, or or are over the age of 50. So from that standpoint, that second shot becomes more important. They have backed off on the need for the second shot, the second booster for people under age 50 because we are anticipating this fall a new vaccine that will be specifically targeting the new variants that we have begun to see, like the BA5, and there's a BA2.4 coming out of India. So in order to get ahead of that, rather than get the second booster, they're recommending it. But the President of the United States, President Biden, uh, did get both boosters and is taking Paxlovid. And with Paxlovid, it's an antiviral medication. And what you do is take three tablets. So it's actually two different drugs. So you're taking three tablets twice a day for five days. And what we know that it does is it shortens the course of illness. It keeps people out of the hospital and keeps them from dying. It really reduces the hospitalization rate. And don't forget, that's one of our biggest targets, is not to overtax the hospitalizations and hospital beds, taking them away from people who have heart attacks, strokes, and other medical problems. Now, with Paxlovid, the complications from it, I mean, you want to know what's the downside. Well, there's a metallic taste. It's a, it's a weird kind of taste. Um, I used Paxlovid when I first uh, got COVID, and uh, basically it's it's an annoyance, but it goes away. I was fearful that it was from the COVID because, you know, many people lose their sense of taste and smell with COVID. But it's often the case with Paxlovid. The other thing you see is a condition, a rebound condition. 
Now, this rebound is something you see in about 5% of people who take Paxlovid. And in that, what happens is after you've now tested negative, so your home test turns negative and you're back to work somewhere between two and four weeks, and that's an estimate, you suddenly develop milder symptoms and turn positive again. This happened to Dr. Anthony Fauci when he got it. And actually, the more I read about it, I think this is what happened to me. Because approximately four weeks after I recovered from my first episode of COVID, I made a trip to Texas. And I thought that I was exposed in Texas, but uh, I'm getting the feeling that it was actually Paxlovid rebound. Now, again, since you're having some mild symptoms, you need to isolate once again. But one of the things that's come up and one of the issues that's come up is, what do I do if I'm around somebody who tests positive, if I've had an exposure? And the best definition of exposure is not wearing a mask for around somebody who is positive or tested positive for 15 minutes or more. That's generally what we use, although with the BA5 variant, we think it may be less time. But with that, what we were doing previously is that if you were exposed, you needed to be under quarantine as well. And that's not the case any longer. So if you are exposed to someone, you do not need to quarantine. You don't need to stay home, that means, unless you develop symptoms. So if you're asymptomatic, but you've been exposed to somebody, you don't need to stay home. You need to get tested, obviously, um, to really see if you've developed COVID. And you want to get that test at least five days after you had a close contact with someone with COVID-19. And these are the CDC recommendations. You want to watch for symptoms for about 10 days after the exposure to see if you develop some of those symptoms. In this case, a lot of congestion, uh, coughing, sore throat, symptoms such as this. If you develop symptoms, you need to isolate immediately and get tested and then stay home. But if you are asymptomatic, okay, you should take precautions for about 10 days and wear a well-fitting mask. Typically, that's an N95 or KN95 mask. So even if you were exposed, as long as you're not having symptoms, you can go out and about your business. But you need to wear a well-fitting mask for 10 days anytime you're around others inside your home or in public. And you should avoid going to places where you're not going to be able to wear a well-fitting mask. That means don't go out to dinner. And try to stay away from closed spaces. Avoid traveling if you can, but if so, take precautions. Again, wear a mask. And also, very important, avoid contact with other people who are likely to become ill. Those being uh, people who are immunosuppressed or elderly parents. So those are the guidelines uh, that we need to follow uh, right now in this case. Our positivity rate is now 10.59%. As I mentioned last week, 
our levels this time last year were under 1%. So we're at more than 10 times that, and they're holding steady at this high rate. Our use of masks is typically lagging. Uh, when you go into a store or you go somewhere, um, people are trying not to wear masks. And, and that's really holding us back a great deal if we're going to get around this thing uh, in any way, shape, or form. This day in medicine, July 23, 1773, Dr. Abraham Coley's was born. The Coley's, Dr. Coley's was an Irish physician and surgeon who became famous for many things that were named after him, but most notably is the the Collies fracture. So his real it, the pronunciation should be Collies, and Dr. Collies the Collies fracture, which is a a fracture of the distal radius of the wrist. So it's a wrist fracture typically when people fall on outstretched hand. They call a fouche injury. Fall on outstretched hand, such as when roller skating, slip and falling. Your immediate thing you do is put your arm down, and in many cases suffer a fracture of the wrist. We're going to take a break. Then we're going to be back with my guest today. I'm really very happy to have uh, this guest. Uh, she is new to our program, Dr. Jennifer Martin. She is the Chief of Emergency Medicine at Trinity Health of New England at St. Francis Hospital. And we're going to be talking about summer emergencies. Uh, you know, and, and it's important because I want to talk to somebody who's been on the front line, not just of COVID, but they're often the first contact you have in an emergency. And there are so many summer emergencies, and what we really want to do is avoid a situation where you have to go to the emergency room. So we're going to be chatting with her. As always, if you have questions for me, either during the show or during the week, uh, you can reach me at info at alessimd.com. We're going to take a short break. And we're going to be back to discuss a few topics. We have an interesting question from one of our listeners. And we want to talk about the similarities between long COVID, chronic Lyme, as people have talked about, chronic fatigue, and chronic Epstein-Barr virus. What do all these conditions have in common? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And, uh, you know, I really enjoy getting questions, um, and especially this was an outstanding question from one of our listeners. Uh, last week we spent time talking about migraine headaches with Dr. Tanya Bilchik. And in this case, I got the this email from a listener, and they said they had two to three classic migraines a year, uh, with uh, typical light and sound sensitivity symptoms, vomiting, and, and lasting for hours. Uh, and uh, never took anything stronger than Tylenol, and uh, immediately, and that would immediately happen, they would take that at the time of having an aura. So a classic picture of migraine headaches. More recently, this person who was writing developed gluten intolerance. And so it's, you know, gluten enteropathy, celiac disease that people can develop sometimes with antibiotics or certain medications, conditions, but they couldn't tolerate gluten. And gluten intolerance involves a lot of abdominal pain, bloating, uh, diarrhea, constipation. So the, the person who wrote, our listener, changed their diet to accommodate for that, going on a gluten-free diet and suddenly had 
no more migraines. Some infrequent auras, but nothing incapacitating as they had before. So the question was, is there a link between gluten and migraine headaches? So I sent that off to our colleague and guest, uh, Dr. Bilchik, who said that she had several patients that reported improvement when they went gluten-free. Gluten is actually an inflammatory substance, so um, there's probably a connection. And in that, she also sent me two articles um, that were published in peer-reviewed uh, journals with the association between migraine, celiac disease, and uh, gluten sensitivity. And in both of those studies performed, um, the conclusions were that migraine was more prevalent in people who had celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease. So Crohn's um, disease, um, you will see more people having migraine. And when screening patients for migraine, the people with celiac disease may be more prone to having migraine headaches. So the gluten-free diet seemed to be very helpful. So um, there is some data, very limited data, um, on this issue. But uh, I really appreciate that, that question because it certainly educated me and I think a lot of us along the way. Another topic that comes up a lot is, and we've talked about here, is the issue of long COVID. And I recently uh, reviewed some information where it looked at the comparison of chronic Lyme, which we're very familiar with here in Connecticut, right? Lyme disease, that and the symptoms don't go away. Fatigue, arthralgias, muscle aches this brain fog and how similar that is to what people are describing as long COVID. Long COVID being defined as the same persistent symptoms that go on for beyond a month. Now, Lyme disease is very different from COVID, right? It's tick-borne. It's a bacterial problem, and you could treat it with antibiotics. And we really became familiar with it in the late 1970s, um, here in Connecticut, and there are a lot of neurologic symptoms from Lyme disease. People get facial weakness with it and can become quite ill. And the bug itself, the Borrelia burgdorferi, live in mice. Mice are the vector, even though we see it come to us a lot in deer ticks. And there are about 500,000 cases a year in the United States of Lyme disease. But here's the interesting part of all this, is about 10 to 20% of people who have Lyme disease, similar to COVID, will develop long-term symptoms. Now, why this is becoming more, more aware, we are becoming more aware of this, is because we expect that more than 50% of all the people living in the United States will contract COVID-19 some variation of COVID-19. So if you're looking at 20% of those people developing this problem, developing long COVID, we've got a lot of people who are going to be quite ill and have persistent symptoms. Now, it's not untreatable, but let's talk about treatment. One of the problems we have is, first of all, documenting this. 
because the symptoms don't show up. There's no abnormality on a, on a CAT scan. There's no abnormality on blood work. Physical examination is normal. So for many years, people with chronic Lyme, chronic Epstein-Barr virus, chronic fatigue were considered to be depressed. This was a psychological problem. Well, we have good proof that it's not. A recent study done really treated and followed people okay, for years who had Lyme and were treated and had persistent symptoms and compared those to controls of other people okay, who had Lyme and were treated. And they found that these people who had persistent symptoms, okay, had fatigue and other symptoms, clearly had a syndrome. But here's the thing I, people need to know, here in Connecticut especially, is this is not a condition that you need to keep treating with antibiotics. And that's been a real issue in Connecticut. I keep using Connecticut as the example because our state legislature passed a law that says insurance companies had to pay for long-term antibiotics for people with chronic Lyme disease. We know it doesn't work because much like COVID, right, once you're treated, once that bug leaves you, that's not what's causing the problem. We believe the problem is because there's an alteration in the person's immune status. So if we're looking at this, we think it actually changes the biome in the gut, in the GI system, where suddenly your body is reacting against healthy cells instead of just abnormal cells, thus resulting in these chronic symptoms like Lyme disease. So it's important that we're not throwing more antibiotics at this by throwing more medication at this problem because in doing so we start creating more issues right so we start creating uh, issues with because these antibiotics when you're taking them for a long time really upset what's going on and many of them are toxic to the liver so uh, it's important from that standpoint well, we have a couple of minutes, just a, a quick update on uh, monkeypox. Uh, this has, uh, today the World Health Organization declared it a, an international health emergency. Um, as of this week, there are over 2,500 confirmed cases in the United States of monkeypox. Uh, we've seen it in children. And again, it's important to note that this is a condition that uh, you have by being in contact with someone who has it, who has one of these lesions, either using uh, a towel or being in contact with them. So uh, I think we're going to be hearing more and more about that. And uh, I think we're going to actually replay at some point that great interview we had uh, with Dr. Michael uh, Raj Kumar. One of our big problems, as I said in the beginning, is, you know, we got to start using masks for covid and we need to get on to COVID-19 testing uh, as much as we can. We're going to take a short break now. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Jennifer Martin. She is chair of emergency medicine 
at Trinity Health of New England at St. Francis Hospital. And we're going to talk about some of the challenges she faces in the emergency department and new technologies available for diagnosing and treating patients in the emergency department at St. Francis Hospital. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest uh, today. Uh, she's new to our program, Dr. Jennifer Martin, who is chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at St. Francis Hospital and part of Trinity Health of New England. Uh, she has come to our area from New York, where she went to medical school and did her residency at Downstate Medical Center and did a fellowship at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital. Welcome to the show, Dr. Martin. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, it's great to have you. Uh, let's talk a little bit. So uh, the emergency department has clearly been the front line when we have fought with COVID. And many people have really neglected themselves, not wanted to go to the emergency department for fear that they would get COVID. Uh, and we saw really catastrophes happening at home, heart attacks, strokes, and things like that. Is there any reason for people to continue to be concerned about contracting and COVID by going to the emergency room? Yeah, you, you bring up some excellent points. I think um, locally we did a wonderful job and our community did a great job during that first wave of the pandemic, listening to the messaging of stay home, try to prevent the spread. Um, unfortunately, I think we did see folks delay treatment and care during that time, and we saw things progress with an increased incidence of out-of-hospital deaths during the years 2020-2021. Do I think that the emergency department is any more of a risk to contract COVID than anywhere else right now? No. Um, As I'm sure many of you and your listeners all know, healthcare workers are vaccinated, um, keeping everyone's safety, including our own, our families, our patients, our communities in in mind. Vaccination is the greatest way for us to help stop the spread. Um, In addition, all hospitals, our hospital included, we're screening our folks as they enter the front door for temperature and signs or symptoms of COVID. Everyone is remaining masked. Um, we have patients when we know they're COVID positive in rooms um, so that they're further away from everyone else. And, you know, those folks, again, are wearing masks, as is everyone who's working. Um, we continue to have diligence around keeping everything as clean as we can. All of our rooms, every room is clean, you know, turned over and appropriately sanitized uh, between patients. Along with that, those high-touch areas like door handles and, and whatnot are also um, scrutinized and cleaned very frequently to ensure everything is as safe as possible. Well, one of the things I really wanted to touch on, there's been so many changes in emergency medicine itself. Um, just mm-hmm. a, a few minutes ago, I dated myself by referring to it as the emergency room. Okay, I mean, that's how much um, I remember when it was actually a room or two. Uh, and mm-hmm. now they've become uh, the emer- the physical plant has changed so much in emergency medicine. Can you talk a little bit about how things have evolved in emergency medicine itself? Sure. Um, so emergency medicine residencies began in the, in the mid-late 70s, which is one of the, the newer specialties within, within medicine, right? It began with surgery and medicine. Yeah. And as folks, I think, transitioned from one specialty into another, they found themselves working, you know, to your point, in emergency rooms. Um, (laughs) And over time, it's evolved as its own specialty, where we really are um, 
most important sort of frontline folk, uh, place for patients to present when they're not sure what's going on. And, and a lot of times it's an undifferentiated presentation. So training programs have evolved over time to ensure that the education of our, our learners, our residents are moving forward so that we are prepared to handle every disease, how it's presenting, um, whether it's the beginning stages, the middle, or the end, where we're, we know what's going on versus we don't know what's going on. So we really had to tailor education to learn and spend time both in our surgical ICUs, our medical ICUs, um, our OBGYN colleagues with our toxicology colleagues, learning the high points of all of these um, entities, any of which can present through the front door, through an ambulance, through a helicopter coming to our hospital. Um, so it's really grown and it's become increasingly exciting. We've seen over the years um, it's becoming more and more competitive because people are realizing that you really can make a difference, whether it's a small difference in closing someone's you know, laceration on a finger or a large difference diagnosing something like a, a large blood clot in, in the lung. Um, so it's, it's a great field in that regard and very rewarding in many ways. How many years is uh, a residency in emergency medicine now? So that's, there's, there's a couple different approaches to emergency medicine. Most programs across the country um, are, are a three-year program, um, though there's a, a, like about 25%, I believe, are a four-year program. Um, all of them nowadays, though, are straight just emergency medicine, spending a certain amount of time in the emergency department on rotations, including both adult and pediatric some time in urgent care type settings, both um, usually urban settings, trauma centers, whether the, the site has its own. They sometimes ship the residents off to different parts of the country if it's not a trauma center. Um, also spending time on labor and delivery floors, um, medical ICUs, surgical ICUs, um, pediatric ICUs. The difference in that extra year oftentimes allows a, a resident to sort of hone his or her interest and determine if they want to explore things further, um, sometimes develop like a, a larger research project, that sort of thing. But the overall amount of um, medical training is, is the same throughout. Now, I noticed you did a fellowship after your residency. And um, although we see that a lot in many areas and many specialties, is that common in emergency medicine to do a, a fellowship um, beyond your training residency? Yeah, it, it's, it, it, I think it depends who you ask and what part of the country you live in. You know, I trained in New York City at a, at a four-year program where a lot of people in the program, I think almost two-thirds of us did fellowship. Um, and if you talk to someone at a smaller program in, in the Midwest or something, you may not see that. Um, I think it's variable. I, I'm on, on staff at the University of Connecticut's program, and over almost half of our residents go on to do a fellowship. Um, and there's different ones. Um, you know, we'll talk about ultrasound, of course, but some people move on and do a pediatric specialty. They do toxicology, um, EMS and pre-hospital care and disaster medicine. Um, so, so some people just develop that interest and want to have that niche that they can subsequently grow and, and um, hone into their, their clinical practice or their academic career. You know, it, it really is such an amazing specialty. I come into contact with a lot of emergency physicians who practice global medicine. Um, and the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, you, you're so needed in so many different parts of, of the world. And I could tell you it's made a big difference in my specialty of neurology, just mm -hmm. having emergency physicians familiar and being able to recognize stroke early and things such as that. That sure. wasn't the case when I first started my practice. And you would have to come into the emergency room for every call. Um, so it, it's really made a difference for all of us. But 
I do want to get to the idea of ultras because this was intriguing to me and we've talked about it on the program is ultrasound because um, I've started to do, enter it, use it in my practice in looking at peripheral nerve disease. But um, uh-huh. tell us about ultrasound in the emergency department. Oh, sure. I'm so excited to talk about this with you. So we've seen the use of point-of-care ultrasound is the, the sort of global term for its use in the emergency department because it differs slightly than an ultrasound performed in a radiologist's office because the probe is held by the clinician. It's held by myself or one of my colleagues. And I'm usually asking a specific question, and that's why I'm using the ultrasound at the bedside for the patient. Um, so in many times, it can actually help us get a patient discharged from the hospital a little bit faster. For example, a young woman who we know is pregnant and is having some cramping or bleeding, if we're able to evaluate her and do the appropriate workup and ensure that there's a, vi- a pregnancy inside of her uterus, we can then have her go and follow up as opposed to maybe having to arrange for outpatient um, evaluation or, or having to get a consultation. Sometimes people who are short of breath, there's a whole multitude of things that can cause you to feel short of breath. And the ultrasound can actually help us look at the heart and look at the lungs and tailor what we're doing um, as far as treatment. Is this asthma, COPD, or is this heart failure? Is there signs of a heart attack on the ultrasound um, in addition to the other tests that we use? So it can sometimes really help us guide therapy. It can help us get diagnoses um, and help us figure out which imaging is the next best step. You know, do we need a formal ultrasound on top of this? Do we need a CAT scan? Um, Do we need other imaging modalities? So it it sometimes can help guide our therapy. It can help, um, help us watch our therapy work. Sometimes if there's fluid in the lungs and we start treating the fluid, shifting it with using um, the BiPAP and non-invasive ventilators, we can see the lungs look better on ultrasound over time. So it's it's really amazing. It helps us provide excellent, even better care to our patients, honestly. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting because an ultrasound, um, for listeners, you know, when we think of it, the only thing you ever knew was, you know, my wife had an ultrasound and we got to see yeah. the baby, you know, smiling at us sure. and giving us a thumbs up. But the uh, it has really evolved uh, to the point where you could see it. And I'm I'm impressed by just listening to you that you could get an idea if someone is having a heart attack or having cardiac failure or even. Um, so I guess. It, so one of the things I always think of is, all right, so you did the ultrasound. Now you're going to do a, a, a CT scan anyhow. But it sounded sure. like you could avoid doing a CT scan um, uh, even if you had to tap somebody's lungs. Am I right? I mean, you could uh, it could really cut down well, on the cost. Um, I, you know, I hesitate to say that we can avoid doing additional imaging because there's, we, we do know that sometimes it just guides us towards the next appropriate imaging. Sure. Um, you know, if someone has a large um, effusion in their lung, which is fluid in their lung, we sometimes, then you do want to see is there something that's loculating it, making it more challenging for someone to tap. So it may result in a CAT scan, but it, you know what? It might result in one sure. that doesn't have contrast which, you know, can ensure that the, the patient's kidneys aren't impacted if they're, if they're um, having kidney problems. So I, I, would, I would hesitate to say it avoids additional imaging, but it can certainly guide us in the right direction as to if there is more required and which study should be done appropriately. All right. Well, let's get to the topic that's on all our minds these days, and that's heat, okay? <laughs> uh, I mean, it is just hot. We know the climate is changing, um, despite people trying to deny that. But the point is, we're all faced with heat. Fortunately, not as bad here as in Europe and other places. But mm-hmm. can you talk about conditions and how a feet, how heat really affects our bodies? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, so heat illness, similar to many, many illnesses within medicine, is, it's a bit of a continuum. You know, we have the sort of early stages of, in being just a straight-up heat illness followed by heat exhaustion and stroke. So the early stages, you know, um, we see our bodies trying to cool itself by some sweating. We might see that we all get a little bit puffy when we're outside, right? That's our body vessels dilating a little bit, again, to help us dissipate that heat so we can cool off. Um, you know, and if we're able to get out of the, the heat during those times, that might be where things end. You know, you get a little puffy, you go inside, maybe your legs cramp a little because you were sweating. Um, but if we're not able to go outside and move forward where our body's temperature actually starts to rise because we're still in the heat. And in addition to the profuse sweating um, and swelling, we might start to, you know, feel a little bit tired and drowsy. You might see that in babies and the elderly. Um, during that time, our heart rates tend to rise, our respiratory rates will rise. Again, all of these are just our body's ways of trying to get rid of the heat to protect ourselves. Um, and then unfortunately, if we're not able to get out of the heat or classic teaching is an elderly person maybe in an, an unair-conditioned apartment or house um, remaining there, that, that progresses from heat exhaustion to heat stroke where suddenly, you know, the body just can't actually sweat any longer and the skin is just hot and red. Um, and very hot, you know, body temperatures upwards of 105 sometimes, 106. And at that time, more than just being tired or exhausted, you see that people um, are not acting appropriate. Maybe they're just totally confused and have what we call altered mental status. Um, during that time, they may decrease their urine output, muscles start breaking down. Um, and, you know, I, I don't mean to, to focus on, on folks who can't get out of the heat, we can sometimes see this happening, and I'm sure we've seen it many times in the past year or two, with young folks who are, you know, practicing football um, at the end of the summer when things are very hot, you know, and, and so, so anyone can be impacted by this. Um, there are also medical conditions that put folks at increased risk for developing any of these heat illnesses. Those include some people who take medications like diuretics, um, other medicines that maybe impact our ability to handle the heat. So those are things that be certainly be mindful of. Um, and then, it, yeah, those are all just things to think about. And the key to all of, all of the heat illness spectrum is to really get out of the heat if possible, um, to cool down as rapidly as possible, whether it's with cool liquids that you're able to drink, whether it's with ice in those areas like the axilla and the groin to just bring down the temperature as fast as we can anytime. You know, I'd like to bring, uh, you brought up a great point, and that is uh, high school football and, and other levels mm -hmm. of football are beginning now. And for parents, uh, when you sign your child up, uh, make sure there's some medical personnel uh, assigned to that team because it's important because in this heat, they know there's a protocol. There should be uh, ice available on the sideline, okay, and there's a tub, right? So when they get yeah. hot, that player goes in the tub, close on, and you just start pouring yep. ice into the bath. Again, that's important. That's a life-saving maneuver. I'm glad you brought that up, um, yeah. especially because every year, every year we every hear year. about mm -hmm. young athletes dying because of heat exposure. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we can't necessarily prevent these changes we're seeing and the temperature's getting hotter, but we can try to, our best to prepare and, and be prepared for when these exposures occur. So recognizing the symptoms and subsequently treating, you know, getting out of the heat, getting into those ice baths, like you mentioned, using a fan even just to blow on them when they're in, in ice as well. All of these things can help, and to your point, be, be life-saving. Other things that 
people should be thinking of to keep them out of the emergency room? Um, uh, I know you mentioned in our earlier conversation, uh, water safety, things like that. Just what can you share with our audience in that regard? Oh, sure. So uh, water safety, I think, is one that's um, kind of close to my heart. I was a swimmer through college, and, and I, I truly believe that swimming is a life skill. And I'm sure it, all of us have seen the number of, of you know, pool signs popping up all over the communities with more and more pools going in homes, and presumably they're going into homes with, with families and children. Um, so those things like a door alarm, to know when someone opens the door, to ensure that the kids are learning early, early on that they're not in that water, um, you know, there, there are safety cover pools to ensure that a child can't fall in um, or even like the, the nets that go around the pool, like a fence closer to to ensure that no one's falling in and having a, a near drowning or a drowning even. Um, I think that those are things that are certainly of utmost importance. Um, um, okay. yeah. No, 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 please continue. Oh, some of the other things when we're speaking specifically of heat and things to try to avoid coming to the emergency department. You know, in addition to it being a hot day, it's also so sunny. And, you know, the sort of uh, mantra of the sunscreen application throughout the day, um, remembering to reapply. You know, it's, it's 1130 in the morning now. And just because we're going outside at this hour doesn't mean that we're covered for the day. That sunscreen, especially on a day like today when we're all going to be sweating outside, used to go on probably every, every 60 to 90 minutes of an SPF greater than 30. Um, we've also seen over the past few years the evolution of, of clothing that is, is lightweight and light color, which is great. It'll help keep us cool, but also has some SPF in it to help protect us. So all of those things are, are certainly of benefit to ensure that we're not getting sunburn injuries that result in us coming to the, to the hospital. I'm glad you brought that up because I see more and more people wearing um golfers particularly wearing these sun sleeves so you mm-hmm. wear your regular shirt um you know short sleeve shirt and then there are these kind of compression sleeves i don't know if you've seen them um but uh, they say that they're very comfortable very cool uh, from a temperature standpoint and um, have a very high spf um, so I, i'm glad you brought up the topic of uh, clothing and attire and i guess the one thing I wanted to touch on with you, and I guess this is one of the sadder things that you must face, is people leaving a child in the car. Um, mm-hmm. And what could people do to try and avoid this? Now, there are some cars now have alarms. I know our car does, you know, if mm-hmm. if there's someone in the back seat, it goes off. But what other things can people do to really avoid a catastrophe such as that? Yeah, I know this is always one of those tragedies. I think we hear about once a year, twice a year, you know, um, that this occurs. I've I've read and I've heard various things that are helpful. I've heard of people wearing only one shoe when they drive so that they have to remember their other shoes in the back seat where the baby is. Um, Always just looking in the back seat. I I know we're all so busy and have so many things on our minds and are oftentimes multitasking in so many ways. and, And that's how these sort of terrible tragedies happen we just kind of forget for a moment and with heat at this level and, and windows closed um, both both young children as well as, as animals that we may be traveling with left in cars are certainly at risk after a very short period of time um, so any, any sort of way that we can just remember that um, whether it's sometimes a mirror that's looking back and you can see that the seat is there um, I, I thought the shoe one was kind of a, a good one <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, an, uh, it's a great one 
Yeah, you know, any anything we can do because we, we do all have so many things on our plates and things are such such challenging times. Um, it's just such a tragic mistake to have, to occur that can really, in, in, this, in this day and age, in this current heat wave, of course, it only takes a few minutes. Um, and, and we would, would definitely never want to see that happening. Dr. Martin, what would you say, and as a final question, we have a couple of minutes to wrap up here. What would you say is the greatest challenge facing emergency physicians these days? Oh, goodness. Um, I, I think we're all still kind of really um, following the pandemic. The past two and a half years, for I think just everyone in medicine has been very challenging. You know, we went through this pandemic. We, nobody knew what we were facing. Nobody knew if we were bringing this home to our families and how to protect ourselves and our families. Um, we saw volume drop. We saw sort of subsequent volatility across the healthcare spectrum where we had these surges. And again, we couldn't keep up with the patients and the patients didn't come back. Um, I think I think many things. It's the uncertainty and the the resources to ensure that we're available and we have every everyone we need to provide the care to our community, um, and the, the knowledge for our community to know that we're here to take care of them. Um, I, I, do, I do think COVID is still a challenge, and I, you know I, I think we're as as Dr. Fauci says we're approaching the endemic phase of this, and we're learning to live with it. But it's still it's still causing problems. You know I think all of the healthcare systems are looking at. Um, how the challenges are, are impacting all of us, whether it's with challenges in staffing and challenges in getting supplies that we need. I mean, fortunately, we've seen things flip over and, and our availability to, to have space and have the, the appropriate treatments for COVID that we've learned over the past two years are, are there. Um, but I, I think that there's a multitude of challenges. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking time with us today, and more importantly, thank you for being there for all of us uh, in the emergency department, both you and your colleagues. Um, thanks oh, again. Oh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here for the community and to be on your show. It's been great. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to wrap things up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Uh, wrapping up uh, today, I'd like to make uh, note of a passing. Um, Sister Rita Johnson uh, was a chaplain uh, for 41 years um, at Bacchus Hospital, and I got to know her over those years. She passed away um, this past week, and a really tough job is being a hospital chaplain and, and dealing with folks and families through such a difficult time. And, and Dr. Rita, Sister Rita used to always say, I said, Dr. Rita, she, we always felt like she was one. Um, but Sister Rita used to say you needed three types of bones to be a good chaplain. You needed a wishbone to be optimistic for people. You needed a backbone um, to be tough and, and tackle tough subjects with folks. And you needed a funny bone to bring some humor into a situation. And uh, we remember Sister Rita Johnson and, and all of uh, hospital chaplains who do a phenomenal job and make our jobs easier as physicians. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer, Tom Conley-Wilson, has been on the board for us today. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next up on WTIC, you'll be hearing from John Matulis. If you missed any part of today's program and the interview with Dr. Martin, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast by downloading it on iTunes or from Odyssey. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. 
Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.